I hope you guys have enjoyed the, the pulpit exchange and just all the pastors coming and sharing God's word with you guys this past month. And I'm glad to be back here uh, to share with you um, his word. Maybe you guys are kind of sad because you realize how long the messages are going to be again. So <laughs> it's all right. Hey, uh, before we get started, I want to I wanna just uh, throw a word of affirmation out for this year, past year's VAY. Give it all to all the players. Yeah, give it all. Yeah. Uh, I, um, so we had a VAY sports tournament in our church, and we played with a bunch of other churches. And the, I'll tell you the truth, I'm, I'm, not, even, I'm not even trying to like, you know, say this because I'm trying to like affirm you guys because we lost, but I, uh, uh, I actually really enjoyed this year's uh, games. I really did. I really enjoyed watching the games. I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed cheering for you guys. And I think I enjoyed it because I was able to watch the players since February go through the process of training. I, I, just, I, just, I knew what they went through to get to where they are right now. I, I knew that the, they had practices every, every Sunday after service out in the park right here or out in the schoolyard. I knew the basketball team, they played league with each other for months before they came out. I knew the Bible trivia team were battling it out day in and day out, you know, practicing, memorizing, you know, uh, for all of this. I, I knew that there was a process that went into this thing. And so when I watched the game, regardless of the win or not, right, I really enjoyed watching where I knew where they came from, which was very low, right? And I knew, I knew where they're at now. And I just realized, you know what, they grew. They grew. They grew as players. They grew as people. Right? There, was an, there was character. There was unity. There was tenacity. There was perseverance. There was a uh, gamemanship. There was a um, sense of competition. And I love that. I love it when I see people go from one stage of their life to a new stage because they were willing to endure a process of training. Right? And that, that uh, I think, and then I, I was kind of upset when people, when they, they haven't really saw that, and they come and say, oh man, we got destroyed this year. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see the process, right? Because if you saw the process, you would have seen, like, man, that's great, you know? And so that's why I, I really wanted to let you guys know, I, I, as your pastor, one of the big things in my life, I'm, the win and the loss, it's, it's, the, it's the cherry on top, right? What is most beautiful is watching you guys go through the process. And I think that's, that's the same way when it comes to the Christian life. The Christian life is very similar. It's, it's the life of where God has found you. He found, he, you will meet God wherever, he will find you wherever you're at. That's the beauty of our God. He's not going to wait for you to become perfect, beautiful, awesome, winning before he finds you. He finds you wherever you are at. And he takes you on the process to bring you to where you need to be. All right? And, as, and, and then the beauty of the journey is this process of watching us go through that. And we've been in this series this past year. Um, this whole year is just about uh, a life that's rooted in Christ. And what does a, a world, what does a, uh, a person's life look like when they give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, rooted in Christ, and having that process be moved and shaped and molded in them? What would that come out to be? And we talked about what that looks like to be in the process. We talked about being with God versus just doing things for God, right? Talked about some of the most important things in your Christian life is the emotional, spiritual health that you have. And that comes from being with God. 
There's a why behind that. It's not just you just show up and do whatever you want, but it's this being with God that produces this growth and this, this journey. But to this series, though, I'm, I'm a little scared to share with you because this series represents that if you're going to be with God, you dare to actually step into that process, what will happen? What is the process that God takes you on? And I'm not going to lie to you. The process, as I was going through the series, as I was, I'm working with KJ and Paul through the series, and I realized the process is not, it's, it's not fun. It's a, actually a very, very painful and sometimes hard and sometimes um, empty scenarios that you have to go through. And today, I want to share with you guys this, but I want, I want you guys to, tr- uh, I want to give you guys the kind of background about these things, so that way, when you do go through this process, you don't just run away from it. Because I think a lot of us, when God begins a process in our lives, instead of actually going through the process, walking with Him, we decide to run and hide. We decide to do everything possible to get away from this, because it seems too difficult to engage into that. I want us to think about what does it look like if we actually engage and dare to draw near to God and walk in the process. Today, the process that I'm going to share with you is this, that if you dare to encounter God, that if you dare to actually engage in a relationship with God, to be with God, one of the first things that will begin to happen to you is that he will drive you into a trial. He will take you into an actual trial where you will face suffering, where you will face everything that you've ever held on to dearly, and you would recognize that at that moment it can be gone in an instant. He will take you through a trial that's going to test your strength, your courage, your trust in him. And a lot of us, when he takes us through this trial, some of us, we've been believers for years And we have seen no change. Do you know why? Because every time God takes us into the trial, we decide that I'm going to run from the trial. Every time God decides I'm going to move them to the next level, I need them to get there. And maybe we'll start the process, and then we're like, ah, that's too much. And you begin to run. But if we would have the courage to endure the process, to endure the journey, The promise at the end of it is blessing. And so my prayer for you today is this. I want to share with you God's purpose in the trial. Because I know we want to know why things happen or what. what, I'm going to do my best to share with you the purpose of the trials. That when you enter into it, that these purposes, that you will hold on to them dearly enough to realize, I need to get through this trial because this is what I'm meant to know, what I'm meant to learn, what I'm meant to have. And I pray, church, that as you dare to draw near to God in the next eight weeks series with me, you will not run, but you would enjoy and engage in the process. You guys follow? All right. So let's bow our heads. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Oh Lord, I come before you as a son, a shepherd of your people, and I confess, Father, my, inadequ- my inadequacy, and my failures in all so many ways. But I come before you, Lord God, in this moment to deliver your word to your people. 
And I ask over the hearts of the sons and daughters here and the friends and families who have gathered. Lord, wake them up. Wake them up into the life that you have called them to have. Move them, Father, until their conviction matches, Lord, the word that you have given to them. Lord, teach us to not run, to not seek comfort, to not seek, Lord God, our own hearts, but, Lord, to, your, to seek yours, to trust you. Lord, would you use me unworthy as I am to share your word for this moment and for this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you decide to draw near to God, when you dare to have a relationship with God, when you dare in your heart to surrender and realize, God, I have nothing else but you, and you step into this relationship, I'm going to tell you, you will face a trial. And if you look at your life, you're like, I've never really faced a trial as a Christian, then you have to maybe ask the question, have I really, am I really a believer? Because all believers, one, tor- one form or another, one time or another, will face a trial, a trial that actually God takes you into. He takes you into the valley of the shadow of death in order to bring healing. In order for us to understand this process, I want you to hear the story of Jacob. It's one of the most mysterious passages in the scripture. And the reason why it's mysterious is because in Genesis, when it was written, the reality was this. The story of Jacob and the wrestler was this Epic idea, the idea that God blesses after he wounds. That God doesn't just bless for the sake of blessing. He wounds, he crush, he punish, he afflicts. And out of that affliction, out of that punishment, out of that crushing, out of that piercing, comes the healing. And people just cannot grasp their mind around that. So why would a God do that? Why would a loving, beautiful, wonderful, infinite God allow for me to engage in this suffering at all? And that's the beauty of the story of Jacob and the wrestler. And to understand this story, I have to give you a little bit of a context, because if you understand the context, you'll have the emotional um, uh, bandwidth to to, to follow with me in this area. And I, I think the story of Jacob is a very similar story to all of our stories. Jacob is... An opportunist. He's always reaching for things that are out of reach. He never wants to be discounted. He wants to make sure that he gets what's his. He doesn't want to be called second best. He doesn't want to have the least. He, doesn't, he, he is not satisfied with his station in life. He wants more. He's not satisfied with the cultural stigma of where he needs to be based on his birth uh, place. He wants more in his life. He wants to achieve. He wants to receive. He wants to gather. He wants to have. He wants to accumulate. That is the story of Jacob since birth. Jacob was a twin. His brother was Esau, right? And Esau was born first. But even since birth, you know what happened? Jacob says, no. I am not going to let you come on first. So he was grabbing Esau's heels as Esau was being taken out of the womb. He says, no, me first, not you, right? And that's why they gave him the name Jacob, heel grabber, who will not stop, who will continue to fight. And because he was the second son in the culture of that time, the second son receives nothing. 
The second son only receives what the first son administers to the family. And the first son was Esau. Esau had it all. On top of that, Esau was the big burly guy. He was the outdoors man. He was the man of man. His dad loved him. Bring home meat all the time, right? He was the guy that you turn to for help. He was the guy that actually can help. When things were going wrong in the the camp, you, you call Esau, right? Jacob was that dude sitting in the corner, just soft, soft-spoken, doesn't say much, right? Not very helpful in terms of like muscular things, right? Can't really bring home food. You know, he's smart though, smart guy, but can't really do what dad wants to do. And Esau was the big, burly, strong dude. And every day, can you imagine Esau being compa- Jacob being compared to Esau? Hey, Esau's a man, Jacob. What is wrong with you? Hey, Esau brings home food. Why are you sitting here with all the ladies? Hey, Esau, right, gets the job done. Jacob, what have you done for this family? But Esau was smart. He knew from the beginning, I am not going to let my position determine my future. So he's already calculating. He's already thinking to himself, what must I do to get ahead? And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to lie, I'm willing to deceive, I'm willing to manipulate, I'm willing to play the game, I'm willing to go through the hustle to get what I believe belongs to me. So he knows his brother, he knows his brother hunts all the time. And when you go hunting, it's not like you have food. As you go hunting, what ends up happening is there are days that you go without food because you're just following your prey. Days that you come up and this time Esau went out hunting and, and, and Jacob always knows that Esau always comes home kind of hungry, right? After a long period of hunt. So he's been, he's been waiting, timing it, manipulating it. Dad's getting older, Esau's getting older, right? This is the time. So Esau's coming home, and Jacob's been planning this forever. He comes out with a big pot of stew. And he's cooking it, and he's just wafing the smell over, and Esau smells it, and he's like, oh, I'm starving. It's been weeks since I've eaten, and he's ran over, and he says, Jacob, give me some food. He's like, no, right? Jacob, I'm your brother. Give me some food. No. He says, what? I'll give you whatever you ask for. Give me your food. Give me this food, right? In his hangriness, he didn't think very clearly, right? When he was hangry, he didn't think Ladies, okay, I'm, I'm telling you, right? When you're hangry, sometimes you don't think very clearly. So in this very moment, as Jacob was saying, give me your birthright. Esau was like, fine, whatever, just give me the food. He sold his whole entire future out for a bowl of mutton, right? There it is. The birthright. The birthright. I am now firstborn. All belongs to me. But that doesn't happen yet until he gets what? Until he gets the blessing of the father. The birthright could be there by name, but he has to have the blessing of his father to make that happen. And so, lo and behold, Isaac was dying. And Isaac was also blind. And Isaac said, calls his son, Esau, hey, I'm about to die. Go make some stew. Come back here. Offer it to me, and I will give you the blessing of our family. The blessing of blessing. You know what the blessing was for that family? It was a very amazing blessing. It was the blessing that the one true God among all the other fake gods out there, the one true God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and now he was going to give to Esau the blessing that through you, 
Your nation will be great. Your name will be great. Your people will outnumber the grain of sand. And from you, you will save and bless the world. That is the blessing of your family and and of our family. And I'm about to give it to you, Esau, that through you, through your line, you will have this. And Esau says, sweet, finally, right? He goes out, make the stew. But Jacob was like, nope, this is the moment. I got the birthright and name. I'm going to make it happen in actual writing now. He manipulates, he puts on a, uh, his, he knew his dad was blind, so he decided to put on a, uh, uh, a fur coat looking thing, right, to pretend like he's his, like, like his brother, because his brother was hairy. He walks in, he says, dad, here I am. And his dad was like, yo, you sound just like Jacob. No, touch me. And he's like, yeah, you feel like Esau, though. I am Esau, dad, right? Give me your blessing. And he says, although you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau, and the food is good, I'm going to give you the blessing. And so he blesses Jacob. He blesses Jacob with the blessing of the family. And Jacob's like, yes. And as he's walking out, Esau walks in. And he's like, what, what's going on? Right? He walks in, tells his daddy, dad, here's the food. Bless me. And Esau said, what do you mean? I just did. He said, no, I'm, I'm, here I am. I'm Esau. And the Bible said Isaac wept. He wept. His father wept. Because he realized, I just got played by my youngest son. And he told, his, he told, his, he told Esau, I cannot bless you. Because I bless your brother, and what I bless him will come true. I cannot bless you anymore. And Esau was furious. He said, I've waited 40 years to receive all of this, all of our possession, the inheritance. And now you're telling me that my younger brother just stole it from, from me? He took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing? said, Dad, must be, there must be a blessing left for me. So Jacob gives him, uh, Isaac gives him some half-hearted blessing. And Esau did this. He went out and he said, when Dad dies, I'm going to kill you. When Dad dies, you're dead, Jacob. Don't even think twice about it. You are a dead man. Because if you die, everything comes back to me. Right? I'm going to kill you. You see it? A liar, a thief, all for what? All to get his station. I will not let my predicament determine my future. And so he went out, he manipulated, he lied, he did whatever he needed to do to take the next level. He chased and he chased. Sounds very familiar for a lot of us, right? And then what happens? He knew he was going to get killed, so he said, I'm just going to run. I'm going to run. Because the blessing's already mine. So wherever I go, the blessing follows me. It doesn't go, it doesn't stay at the camp. It goes with me, right? That's the power of what God's blessing does. It stays with Jacob. So he knew that he was going to go, and he runs away. He runs over to his uncle Laban. And he's staying there. He's trying to protect himself. And uncle, his uncle was like, you know what? Hey, why don't you work for me? And Jacob's like, oh, cool. Your uncle, we're family. This is going to be great, right? So what do you want, though? I don't want you to work for fair. What do you want? to ah, let, um, let me marry your daughter. Rachel, I love her. She's pretty. She's gorgeous. She's a second daughter. Laban said, sure. Work for me for seven years. Laban was like, what? Seven years? Seven years? I'll give you my daughter. Free labor. Right? Who wouldn't want that? Free labor. Seven years. Okay. Jacob said, fine. Seven years. Work seven years. Day of the wedding. We just had a wedding, right? Imagine that. Imagine, imagine day of the wedding. And Jacob was like, all excited. He's going to get Rachel. And then... That night, he woke up next to the older sister, Leah, the least beautiful one, the one that no one wanted to marry, but the one that Laban said, you know what? I need to get rid of her, so 
Let's put her in your life first. Imagine, imagine yesterday we had a wedding with the agency. Imagine he, he's excited to see his bride, Asia, walking down. And all of a sudden, he's like, he's like oh, he's already tearing up. And then as he's walking, right, it's not Asia. Right? It's, some other, it's some other girl coming in. He'd be like, what? What did you just do to me? Right? I mean, Laban was like, Laban was like, so he met, so on top of being a, a swindler, he met, he met, a, he met a true uh, player, right? He met Laban. And Laban was like, I'm going to get you back too, right? I'm going I'm to show you how the real hustle happens. He said, seven years? How about seven more years? And I'll give you Rachel too. And then Jacob was like, I guess I have to go through it, right? So he had free labor for 14 years to marry two daughters, you think the story is over, but it's not over. So after 14 years, if you work for free for 14 years, eventually you're going to do what? I don't want to work for free anymore. Right? I want to do my own thing. So he got up. He said, I'm going to leave, father-in-law. And Laban was like, no, don't leave. Stay here. When you watch my stuff, everything gets better. And so Jacob says, what? Oh, you want more free labor. Okay. So now Jacob's been planning 14 years in his mind. He said, you swindled me for 14 years? I'm going to swindle you for everything you have. So I'll work for you, Dad. How about this? I'll even make you a deal. If I bring home, uh, like, let's say your flock. If, if your flock comes out with, you know, speckled, dark hair, you know, goats and stuff like that, I'll keep that, and you get to keep only the white, pure ones. Is that cool? And Laban said, yeah, that's a good idea. No one wants the dark, speckled ones anyways. I'll take the, I'll take the clean, clean, uh, clean and um, uh, pure ones, right? So Jacob... He worked 14 years. He managed all these. He knew exactly what was going on. And so he did some biology in those 14 years. And he found a way to mate the strong goats with the other strong goats. And they all came out speckled, right? And so as the years progressed, he worked for another six years. As the years progressed, Jacob's net worth started increasing because he started getting all of these goats. Because he told his dad, hey, dad, it's speckled, man. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep this one, right? Oh, it's speckled again. I'm so sorry. I'm going to keep this one too, right? And Laban kept getting all the weak, pure, white-looking ones. And over six years, what ended up happening was Jacob ended up becoming ultra, ultra rich. While Laban and his sons were like, something's wrong, right? Why are we not as rich as Jacob? And then they realized Jacob was swindling them again. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to let my predicament determine who I am. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to hustle until I get what belongs to me. So here he was, 12, 11 children, two wives, two concubines, maybe not the best idea, but two wives, two concubines, manservants, maidservants, and a whole slew of net worth. And he says, now I'm going home. Going back to my dad's place, because I'm coming back with money. And as he begins to come back, he leaves his father-in-law, he begins to come back. He felt good about himself, right? I got the birthright, I wrestled, I, I, I worked my own strength and energy, I made it. I fought when no one else thought I could make it, I made it. And he's walking back home with his whole family. In the, and in the far distance, he heard a whisper. Your brother's coming. He says, who? Your brother, Esau. And so he sends his servants to check it out. Say, is, is it true? Servants comes back. Says, what did Esau say? He didn't say anything. But he's coming with 400 men. And Jacob realized 
He's come to kill me because he told me the next time I see you, I will kill you and take back everything that's mine. Now, Jacob's heart was thinking, what? That's going to happen. Because why? If Jacob was in that position, he would have done the same. That's Jacob's life. And he thought to himself, surely my brother thinks just like me. He's going to come and he's going to wipe out everything I've had. I've worked for 20 years to accumulate this worth, and in one night, I can lose it all. All of my family, all of my children, all of my maidservants, all of my manservants, all of my goats, all of my donkeys, all of my cattle, everything gone in one night. And now he's finally come to a place of what? Actual desperation. You guys get me? He's finally come to a place where he's facing a real trial. You know what a trial is? A trial is not an inconvenience, guys. A trial is when you come face to face with a situation where the thing that you love most, the thing that you find worth in the most, the thing that gives you value the most, at that moment, that thing is now threatened and its ability to be taken away from you. When that happens, you know you're facing your trial. And so the whole time, God in the background has always blessed Jacob, always been with Jacob. Jacob doesn't really realize it. He, he, he kind of understands it in the background, but he never really fully grasped it. And the whole entire time, Jacob was like, I did this by my own strength. I made this happen. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who accumulated the wealth. I'm the one who fought for my birthright. I'm the one who made it. It's me. And God all the while says, okay, I'm going to send you something that's going to freak you out. I'm going to send you your trial of annihilation. I'm going to send you a threat that can possibly wipe out your whole entire family. And in that moment, Jacob, in his heart, finally realized, I cannot do anything. He faces his first and most dearest of all trials. That's his heart condition. You guys follow me? It's like this. It's like, it's like you, you've worked so hard your whole entire life studying. You study so desperately to get into med school, law school, and whatever it is, right? And you, and you thought you're doing pretty great, and you thought you're like, you know what? No one's going to help me. I'm going to help myself. I'm going to self-study. I'm going to do all these things. And when you finally came to the point where you're supposed to pass a test, or you're supposed to get into the school, and you realize, I didn't get in. I didn't pass. And, you, and, and, and your whole world begins to kind of collapse around you. Like, what do I have now? My whole life was built on this. What do I have now? You wanted to build a family. You wanted to get married. You want to have children. All of a sudden, you find yourself unable to. What do we do now? You want to focus on your career. You want to accumulate worth. You want to actually get further in your life. And then you find out you can't even get a job. <sighs> Or whatever job you have, you find yourself working and working, and you're not getting anything out of it, and you find yourself even more lost. What do I do now? What do I have now? Or you've accumulated so much worth and so much value, so much uh, finances to your name, and then overnight, you lose your business. Your 401k drops pretty much nothing. Everything around you falls apart. What do you do now? See, some of us, you don't have that feeling yet, right? Because you still think you can still strive. I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I pray, I mean, I, I don't want to pray like this prayer, but like, but I pray to a point, right, that God will place you in a trial like that. 
Because if he doesn't, you know what you're going to still be doing your whole entire life? Striving. You're still going to be wrestling, thinking, I can do it. I can make it. I can get there. I can accumulate. I can build this, this, this castle. I can build my life. And you're going to keep chasing and keep chasing and keep chasing. Grace be to God when he says, stop chasing. Let me send something into your life to pause you for a moment, to get you focused correctly so that I can show you what is more important. Let me tell you guys the question today. The question today is this. What is, God, what is God's purpose in our trial? What is God's purpose in you? If you're going through a trial, can I, can I pray that this word will give you encouragement? If you're not going through this trial and, you, and, I, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to pray for this word for you that when it does happen that you don't run from it, right? that you actually embrace it to go through it. If you're not a believer and you're wondering why, well, I don't really care, right? And you do go through a trial, can I tell you, maybe that trial that you are going through in your life at this moment is God's whisper to you, hey, I'm calling you home. What is God's purpose in the trial? What is God's purpose in our trials? Open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 32. Verse 22 to 24. So that night, Jacob got up. He took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him till daybreak. What is God's purpose in our trial? The first purpose that God places in the trial is for us to focus on him. The trial is to help us to have focus, to actually create in our minds a sense of focus. See, the man forces Jacob to focus on him and not the immediate problem. See, can you imagine Jacob? Jacob's trying to like, okay, I got to take my family across the river, make sure they're safe. I'm going to have to face my brother by myself and make sure that if anything happens, they have some time to run. They have some time to get out of here. That at least I can maybe save a few kids, save a few stuff. But he's, he's doing his best. He's, and he's, he's, he's now across the river. He's sitting there, and he's just stressed out of his mind, thinking, what is going to happen with my life tomorrow? Everything is going to end. And he's just stressed about these things. And then the man shows up. We don't know who this man is, but the Bible tells us later the man himself was God. God shows up to Jacob, and he wrestles with Jacob. And the Bible says he wrestled with him all night. Now, I've wrestled in high school, so let me tell you something, okay? Two minutes is already death, okay? Two minutes is death when you're in good shape, okay? All right? A whole match is six minutes. I remember my first six-minute match, my mouth was cotton. I couldn't even, like, breathe. I couldn't even swallow because it was so dry, right? But I couldn't move my arms. It was just so spent. It was just six minutes. And Jacob wrestled this man one hour, two hour, three hour, Six hours to daybreak. It wasn't just a wrestling match. It was combat to the death. Two guys going at each other. Jacob was like, what are you doing, man? I don't want to fight with you right now. But the guy wouldn't stop. And then Jacob said, you know what? I'm not going to stop either. And he keeps going at him. Back and forth, back and forth. And the whole entire time, for that whole entire evening, what was Jacob doing? He was just focused on the fight before him. He had nothing else. He didn't even think about his family at this point. He's just focusing on, like, I need to survive. This guy's going to kill me for some reason, right? Maybe he was a spy. Maybe my brother sent someone to kill me. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die here tonight. He keeps fighting. He keeps going at it. 
God's desire for you, church, is this. He desires to change you. But the problem of changing you requires this. It requires you to have focus on him. When there is no focus on God, there is no change that happens to you. Right? You guys understand this. I don't need to be a Christian to understand this. If you want to get better at sports, you should hang out with people who are better at sports. Right? For example, if you want to run well, don't hang out with me. Right? You're not going to make it. Right? I'm a four miles per hour kind of guy. Right? I'm not going to make it. Okay? If you want to get better, you hang out with someone who runs, you know, 10 miles per hour or something like that. Right? Someone who's faster. That's how you get better. That's how you improve. That's how you change. That's how you grow. But what if, what if the change that God is asking of you is not just an experience or a skill set, but what if the change that God is asking for you is the change of your humanity, the change of your very being, your very soul, and your very life? The only way that you can change that is if you have an encounter with God. Because only God can change your life in such a way to take you from death to life. Only God can do that. But here's the problem about us. We cannot focus on God most of the time. Isn't that true? We spend our whole entire life focusing on the issue before us, next problem, next problem. We're stressing about this, stressing about that. When all the while God is saying, focus on me. This is what's going to change you. This is what's going to shape you. This is what's going to mold you. Nothing else will do that. Why does God... What is God's purpose in our trial? It is so that we can encounter God in such a way where we are changed by him. I think you guys understand this. You know when you drive, you know, driving, you see a beautiful scenery, kind of like, oh, that's so, that's so pretty. But you still drive at the same speed. You're like, wow, that's so pretty, right? Keep going. But when do you slow down? When you see an accident. There's no reason for you to slow down. You, remember, you can be on the whole side of the, of the, of the freeway, but you're just like, wow. And all of a sudden you slow down and you cause a huge tra- traffic jam because everyone just slows down for some reason. Everyone does that rubber neck thing. Something about pain focuses our attention. You guys get me? God puts you in the trial. His purpose in your trial is that he's watching you and he's watching you strive. He's watching you chase. He's watching you wrestle. He's watching you hustle. And you are called his, by the way. You are a believer and he's doing all these things and you're like, but you're not growing. You're not actually transforming. Let me send you a trial. Let me send you a pain. So that now you would actually focus. You know, Seth, what he does to get my attention, he was like, Daddy, Daddy, he'll pull my sleeve, right? And you know, as a father, I'd be like, hey, wait till I'm done talking to so-and-so, and then I'll talk to you, you know? So I try to change, uh, you know, just out of respect, but sometimes, right, he has a real emergency, but I don't really pay attention. So I'm here, I'm talking to so-and-so, and he's just sitting there, he's just waiting, like, dad, 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 right? I said, wait, I told you to wait, right? And he's, I'm, I'm, but the problem with me is after I start talking, I, I totally forget about him. So I was like, I'm doing all these things. And then, you know, one time, one time, he came up and he bit me. Right? He bit my hands. I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, Enoch's in trouble. I was like, oh, shoot, right? So why didn't you do it first? I like, because you, you're so busy, right? You just keep talking. You won't stop talking, right? You have all these meetings, right? I'm like, okay, right? So I ran over. Pain focuses the attention. You guys get that? To what's important. Right? That's, that's the best illustration I got, guys, all right? <laughs> God's purpose in our trial, church, it's for us to focus on him because he knows that only when we are in focus with him can there be real transformation. In Christianity, you can have Christian, Christianity light in your life. 
I mean, you can go through the whole Christian phase, you can do the whole Christianese stuff, you can have all that stuff, but you will never have a transformation unless you have an encounter. And most of the time, we don't want to encounter God through the word. We get lazy. We don't want to encounter God through the prayers. We get kind of lazy. We don't want to encounter God through the disciplines because we get kind of lazy. And so God sends us the trial for us to focus, for us to finally say, as Jacob said earlier, he said this in his prayer. He said, God, my father Abraham. This is the first time he prayed, by the way. Throughout the whole entire story of Jacob, he never prayed. This is the first written prayer. He said, God, the, father of my, the, the God of my father Abraham and Isaac, the steadfast God who has kept his promise, I realize that everything I have had up to this point was not because of my hustle. It was because of your steadfast love for me and my people. I have nothing else at this point. All I have is you, and my brother is going to come and wipe me out. Oh God, save. It was in the trial that God gets us to focus. When you encounter God, do you know what happens? There is a change. I think I used this illustration before. Right? If, I, if I told you I came late to church because I got hit by a semi, I'm standing up here, oh man, I'm sorry, I'm slated, God. I just got hit by a semi truck and I'm just oh, messed up. And you guys would be like, Are you? our pastor lost it. He, he's gone crazy, right? So why? Because there's no way that you can hit by, get hit by a semi truck and still look normal and still walk normally and still function normally. There is no way that you can encounter something so big and be the same. And God knows that. He knows that there's no way that you can encounter me and stay the same Christian you have been all these years. And the problem that you are the same believer that you've been all these years is that you have not truly sought to encounter me. And so I send you this trial so that you would focus. Yes, follow? Here's the second reason. Look at verse 25 to 26. Some of you guys are regretting already. Oh, man, it's going too long. It's only second point. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God's purpose in our trial is first for us to focus on him, but second, it is for us to recognize our weakness. Do you know what Jacob was doing the whole entire night? He was saying, somewhere around the night, he realized it was God. Okay? Somewhere around the night, he realized, this, I'm wrestling with God. Okay? So he thought to himself, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to use my strength. I'm going to use my tenacity. I'm going to use my endurance. I'm going to use this body that I've been given, that I have accumulated. I'm going to fight my way through this. I'm going to win. And so what does, he, what does he do? He doesn't give up. He fights and he fights and he fights. He uses his own strength to get God to give him what he wants, right? How many times do we do this as a believer? We have this relationship with God, but we, what do we do? We don't actually trust in God. We don't surrender to God. We keep saying, I'm going to keep fighting with you until you give me what I want. I'm not going to, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to place all this work if you would just give me this. I've done all this, you should re- I should receive this. So here he is, he's wrestling with God, he's wrestling with him, he's fighting with him, he's using all of his strength to say, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, until he realized what, at the last minute, he thought, like, I got it, he's not giving up, this man is going to lose, I'm f- I knew it, my strength is going to pull through, as it has always pulled through, I am my man, and then all of a sudden, daybreak was coming, and God said, 
and he just falls. That was, that's it. And if you can imagine, you can imagine Jacob at this point. He spent, he's fought all this time. He thought, maybe I'm, I'm almost about to win. This guy is going to give up. I've used all my energy. He's going to lose. He's going to lose. Only to come to the realization at the last minute. I wasn't even in the game. I, I wasn't even a player. I, I, this, this wasn't even, this, he was just playing me all night. This wasn't even real. See, the problem with our Christian life is this. We build our whole life on something that's so fragile. And we think we're so great because we built it. We built our family, built our finances, our careers, our future, our bodies. I did this never realizing that all that you build can be taken away overnight. You have an Adonis body because you worked out every month for a year or two years, and then you get cancer. All of that goes away. You didn't control that. How fragile that was, your health, that you thought you were, had so much power over. You build a whole entire finance. You play all your stocks into something, and overnight, boom, gone. You thought that if I just marry this person, everything's going to be great, and, you, and you've been with them, you walk with them, and all of a sudden you marry them, and they turn out to be the worst. You thought that if I can just get that future, get that career, get that job, it's going to make my life happier, make my life great, and then you finally got that job, and you realize, I hate this job. I'm not even meant to do this. You build all of these things by your own strength, and you, and you come to the realization how utterly fragile it all was, all of it was. Because there are things, church, that you cannot control. There are things that you have no power over. No matter how strong, how smart, how witty, how great, how clever you think you are, God places us in the trial for us to recognize how fragile the world in which we build is. A world in which we build with our own hands is constantly and always fragile. God desires to change us, church. He brings us to our trials to show us how completely helpless we are, all so that we can cry out, I cannot do anything unless you bless me. This, this last prayer right here that, that Jacob cried out, I will, not let, I will not let go until you bless me. It was not like a demand, okay? It was a last plea for help. His legs were gone, right? He's holding on for his dear life. He realized that if God, you don't bless me, I'm going to die tomorrow. If you don't watch over me, it's all over tomorrow. And he's clinging on to God with everything that he has left because he knew that there's nothing else in his life that he can cling to for his hope, for his value, for his future, for his life. He's clinging on to that. See, a lot of us, what are we doing? Instead of recognizing our weakness and clinging on to God, we're clinging on to what? My job. I love my job. If I can have this job, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be great. My job is my foundation. You cling to your husband or your wife. My relationship with them is my foundation. If I can just have them, I'm happy. I'm good. I'm set. I'm settled. To your bank account, I got this. I'm safe. I'm secure. If anything goes wrong, at least I still have my bank account. 
And you cling to those things with all your heart. And all the while, God is saying, wait up, hold up. Do you not realize how fragile those things are and how overnight they can be gone? Let me send you a trial. Let me send you a trial so you would actually recognize how fragile those things are. And so what does God do? He takes it away. He threatens it. Threatens the thing that hurts you the most, that scares you the most. He puts it right before you so that what at that moment? You cling. But you don't cling to it. You cling to him. You hold on to him. God's purpose in our trial, verse 27, check this out. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The purpose of God in our trial is first for us to focus on him, to recognize our weakness and our need for him, and thirdly, is to confess our sins before him. See, some of us, we confess our sins, but I don't think you really, you, you don't confess it the way I think you should confess it. I think the way, I think the way you understand it to be, right? And the reason why you, you really never confess it that way because you've never been at a point where you felt like you can lose everything. The man asked him, what is your name? What did Jacob, what, he said, Jacob. But it wasn't just like, oh, my name is Jacob. It was a cry. He says, I'm the deceiver. I'm the hustler. I'm the liar. I am Jacob. I've wrestled with men all my life. I've chased all my life. I've done everything for my own worth, my own value, my own significance. I've done all. I am Jacob, the opportunist. I am Jacob, the one who reaches for what he cannot attain. I am Jacob because I refuse to stay back. I am Jacob who fought for my whole entire life for my own self. That's who I am. And I'm at a point where I realize I have nothing left. I am Jacob. That is a confession of sin. You guys get that? Right? See, when we confess, you know, I, I, I followed up. I was, I was reading up the news about the, the young lady who is trapped in, in the WNBA lady who's trapped in um, Russia right now, right? And she, got, uh, she, she had vape in her bag uh, against the law in Russia. Right? In, in America, it's fine. You can have it, right? But in, in, in Russia, it's, it's 10 years prison. And it's kind of heavy, Right? And I don't think she, I, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't want to presume what, what I thought for her, right? Whether she was going to get in trouble or not, but she finally got in trouble, right? Her life, her whole life is now taken away. And then she was recorded saying, I'm sorry to my family, to my friends. She just apologized for everything. And I was like, that is a woman who understands her reality at this point. And out of that understanding comes what? Repentance, right? See, when you don't understand the reality of where you're at, you're not going to confess in the confession of repentance. You're going to give the lip service of repentance, which is, yeah, I'm sorry, God. I didn't mean to, you know, I didn't mean to be a bad person. I didn't mean to do that. It's, you know, it's, that's not my intention, Right? when you come before the living God, when you face the trial, when you recognize that everything that you were, everything that you are that has built up to this moment, everything that it is, it's like I have done my whole entire life chasing for myself. I've lived for myself. I am selfish in every possible way. I'm more selfish than I can possibly imagine. And even the good things that I did, I did it for selfish gain. I did it for the attention, for the accolades. I did it to make myself feel better. All these things. 
was because of my own selfish desire to stand above you. God sends you to the trial. He sends a trial for you to recognize that. So that now when you bow your knees in repentance, you, you repent in a way I know exactly who I have sinned against. See, when we repent in this kind of like half-hearted way, it's because we're trying to repent in terms of how everyone else is. You gauge everyone else, like, I'm not as bad as that person, so my repentance shouldn't be as desperate. But remember I told you, the sin is not the issue. The issue is the one you sin against. It's whom you sin against, right? If I slap Enoch on the head, I'm not going to get in trouble for that, right? I walk out, I slap a cop on the head, I'm going to get at least handcuffed, right? If I decide to slap the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I'll probably die on the spot, right? The act is still what? A slap, but it's who you slapped that becomes the actual punishment. And so when you sin before a living God, a holy God, when you have chosen to live your whole entire life, wrestling with everything else, trying to attain your worth, your value, chasing after these things, putting God on the back burner, calling on him just for whatever it is that you want, and then throwing him aside. Here you are, you live your whole entire life with that, and now he sends you this trial for you to do what? For you to recognize that. That is how you've always been. You have been selfish beyond words. You thought that you could control all things in your life. You thought that you have power. You thought that you had the audacity, the arrogance of you. Now you have nothing. Now you are nothing. Can you see it? And that's the point when we begin to say, yes, Lord, I see it. I am Jacob. God's purpose in our trial is for us to focus on him, to recognize our weakness, to confess our sins. And look at verse 20 and 29, it says this. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. God's purpose in our trial is this. It is to change you, change your character, to take you deeper. If you're a believer, it is to take you deeper into your faith, to become more of the Christian that you thought you were supposed to be. If you're not a believer, it is to bring you into a place where he gives you a new name, a new identity, a new start. Let me me tell you what I mean by this, okay? You're no longer the the one who strives. You're no longer the hustler, the wrestler. You're no longer the one who manipulates and lies. You are now Israel because you have wrestled with God and men and you have overcome. I've given you a new identity and a new destination and a new trajectory. I've given you a new purpose this day, not just for you, but for all those who come after you. You are Israel. This is your identity. For a lot of you guys as believers, you know what? I'm a Christian. Your identity is a Christian. You, You hold that pretty clear. Right? But oftentimes you don't really understand how deep that identity is until God takes you into a trial to bring you even closer to him. I have a story real fast. I have a friend, his name is David. And no, not the Davids we preached here, right? No, they're all Davids for some reason, right? The David. But uh, growing up in college, we call him Gangster David, right? Because he was actually a gangster, okay? He was actually a gangster. Uh, but he, he met the Lord. He met the Lord in his life, okay? 
And his, his, we, went to, we went to missions together, but he, the thing was about, about David was that he, he, he lived a life, one day I'll, I'll have him come and preach for you guys, but um, he lived a life where it was just constantly up and down in his Christian life. He'll be, he'll be on fire for the Lord, and then he'll, he'll get into drugs and stuff, and he'll end up going just downhill. He'll go into this huge binge, and you just find him in this dirt of a hole. But he'll come back out. Somehow, God will just kind of pull him back out. You know, he's the kind of guy who has demons in his, in his head. He hears voices all the time, right? There was, there was, there was one last, this last season of this constant binge, right? There was a season where I had to, like, help him escape to Korea. It was really bad, right? But here in this season, this last season for him, the last, like, rock-bottom season. He was at such a bad place. He was, he, was so much, he was on so much drugs. He would call me. He would be, like, telling the FBI to get after me. I'm like, they are? So why are you calling me, bro, right? <laughs> he's like, he's like, like they're, he, he's, he's telling me, like, they're, they're stationed at the, you know, Star Barbecue? You guys have been in Star Barbecue? There's, like, a pet store next to there. That's their hideout. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and I, how do you know? It's like, I hear... I hear the radio signal from my girlfriend's earrings. I'm like, bro, you, are, you have lost it. You've lost it, David. I was like, no, I'm serious. You have to come. I'm like, no, I'm not coming, right? You, you're, I, think you've, I think you need help, like real major help. Says, you have to help me. I was like, I, I, I will help you, but not that way, right? And so he, he went off grid for months. It was actually, I just, I just got a message from him in April. But he was, he, was, he was off grid for about six months. Where was he? He was on the streets. He was those crazy guys walking around, just talking nonsense, right? He was in, he was in LA, Venice Beach area, walking up and down, just li- living off of the streets, just thoughts in his head, rambling stuff. And all the while, and there's one encounter where he, he went across this um, community building, uh, these, these houses, and he said, that's my house. I own that house. In his head, he thought so, right? So he went into the house. He did not own that house. It was not his house. He walked in. Everyone freaked out. And he's screaming, like, why are you in my house? And they're like, why are you in our house, right? And it's just going back and forth. And they're calling the cops. And he's just like, what are you guys doing? And he's making a scene. And they're like, well, the cops are coming. He steals their car. He drives it. Cops coming after him. He crashes it at this... Um, a Cool Kicks uh, store in Merrill's Avenue, right? Gets arrested. Mind shattered. Everywhere, he's, he's facing jail time. He's facing all these things. They put him in jail. Thank God for medicine. They gave him some medicine, right? And he starts to clear up. And as he clears up, he says in, in, in the jail cell, they gave him one thing, which is the Bible. And he started reading it. Cover to cover. Over and over. For two months straight. Just kept reading it. Just kept reading it. He went through all of that, and, and, and what ended up happening was that God cleared his mind, purged him of his addiction overnight. Miracle, right? His addiction overnight. And then he begins to step into sharing the message to his jail cell people. And from there, he got out, right? And he did a nonprofit for people on the streets. He, he's actually at the church... Um, a Breaking Bread Church. What church is that? Hill, Hillside Church. He's at that church. He's their um, interim pastor, right? And the thing he shared with me was this. He said, he said this. He said, Tony, I've always been a Christian. Nothing's changed. I was a Christian in college. 
I was a Christian in my worst moments. I was a Christian in my meth binge moments. But you know what's the difference here now? It's like, what? I've encountered God. And he's changed my very desires. I don't want what I used to want anymore. I don't desire, I don't need it, I don't have the, it, it actually grotesques me at this point. And I said, how is that? He says, there's no way that you can encounter God and him not changing your life. He takes you deeper when you go through the trials with him. See, your Christian life, you may feel pretty comfortable with it, but God's saying, I have something even more deep to show you. I have something more things I want to purge out of you. I have, I have a level of thinking that I want you to even attain to. I have, a, I have a spirit of generosity that you don't even think you can have, but I want to show you that you can even have that. I want to show you that this need that you have, that you're chasing all the time, that you can actually find peace in that. I have something even deeper to take you in, but I cannot take you in there if you're still chasing your own thing. Therefore, I send you a trial. And if you would have the courage to endure the process of this trial with me, to focus on me, to recognize your weakness, to confess real confession before me, the promise is this, I will give you your identity and your purpose and your direction back. I will restore true humanity. And the trials that come is always to do what? To get us deeper. You guys get me? The trials that come in our lives, there's never just one trial, but there are multiple trials. Each trial that comes takes us deeper and deeper. The reason why a lot of us have no depth in our life is because every time trials comes, we run. Every time trial comes, we decided I'm not going to face it. I'm going to be apathetic to it. I'm going to put my hands up, whatever, and do my own thing. And God is so faithful because why? He keeps sending the same trials. Over and over until you get it, until you finally said, okay, God, I will embrace this trial. This time. And I think some of you guys understand that. Those of you guys who've been through trials in your life, and you've seen how God's taking you one step deeper. And you're, you're maybe at a place where you're like, I'm pretty comfortable actually where I am right now. And all the while God's saying, no, not yet. You can be. I mean, Jacob was comfortable for about 20 years. And then he took him onto a real trial, right? I hope he didn't take you that long. There will always be a trial to take you deeper. Because ultimately, this is the last thing right here, verse 30 to 32. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. God's purpose for the trial, our trial is this, is ultimately for us to be a witness of his, to be a witness of him. See, the world doesn't see God for who God is because oftentimes his followers are not the witness that they are meant to be. You see, if we are the witness that we're meant to be, here's the thing. I, I, I know that there's a way of living as, as Christians, and I know that what the scripture tells us to live as Christians and oftentimes, what we see Christians live like and what the word of God tells us to live like, it doesn't match up. And because it doesn't match up, there is no witness. There is no witness. But when God takes you into the trial, when God takes you deeper, there's a transforming of your heart that does what? That changes your character. And all of a sudden, your character begins to match with what the word of God is saying. Where your generosity is not just partial, 
half-hearted, committed, but your generosity and your life is sacrificial. The Bible says what? The Bible says David would not pay for something that cost him nothing. The Bible said Jesus saw the poor widow woman who gave only two pennies and said this woman gave more than all of those fools who gave out of their excess because she gave from her sacrifice. Some of us, we can't understand that, that graph of sacrifices because why? We have now allowed for our character to be changed to a point where we understand sacrifice. We need to be taken deeper in order for us to be a truer witness. You can only witness what you have encountered. And if you encounter God this much, you can only share with him this, about other people about this much. But as you take it deeper, all of a sudden your witness has more power, does it not? Your testimony has more weight to it. Why did the Israelites stop eating the hip? Because they said, look at our father Jacob. He met God. And because he met God, we are his people. Look at our people, the Israelites, throughout the nations now. The mystery of this passage is this. What is God's purpose in our trial? The mystery is that he wounds us in order to heal us. Do you guys know that? He wounds you in order to heal you. And this is not just a spiritual thing. This, 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 is, this happens in reality too. I used to uh, lifeguard as a lifeguard. You know, like... Um, and one of the rules of a lifeguard is if the, the person who's drowning grabs you, you know what you're supposed to do? Bring them down, deeper, right? Drag them down. So the moment they go down, they freak out and they let you go so that you can actually save them, right? I remember one episode where we were teaching this to the junior lifeguards and all the lifeguards out there just doing their own thing. We weren't paying attention. One of the kids started drowning, Right? And you know, the mom stands up, she's freaking out, and then we had one junior lifeguard, she's, run, she's, she's swimming, because she's a close, she swims to him. And the moment she swims to him, she, he grabs her, and she's a, like this frail, tiny girl, so she's like, ah, right? And, she couldn't, and she's coming down, she's like, she's drowning herself. And so you can hear the reverb across the pool. All the lifeguards just scream out, drag him down! And then his, the mom was like, what? And everyone just ignored the mom, they like, drag him down, right? And the girl, you know, in her training, she grabs his, his shoulder, and she just pulls him down. And she, as she pulls him down, what happens? He lets her go. He gets back up, and by that time, the lifeguard comes, comes behind, able to grab the kid, bring him to safety. Why? In order to save, oftentimes, you need to wound. And I know in your head, you're thinking at this point, bro, this sounds kind of messed up, right? You're telling me that in order for me to be healed, I must be wounded? You're telling me that it's possible for my prayers for healing is going to be met with more sickness? You're telling me it's possible that my prayers for tranquility and peace is, might lead to more suffering? You're telling me that my hopes for deliverance can be met with deeper destruction? That sucks. What kind of scripture is that? What kind of affirmation encouragement is that? That in order to be healed, I have to be wounded. How can I have the assurance to go through a trial? If you're telling me this, the next trial I'm going to go through, I'm boning out. I'm not going to go through this. I'm not going to embrace it. You're crazy, PT. And here's my only answer to you. What assurance do you have for it? What assurance do you have that you should take the piercing? That you should take the crushing? That you should take the punishment? That you should take the wounding? This is your encouragement. Isaiah 53. For he was pierced 
for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What assurance do you have? You look to the cross. God wounded his only son. God crushed his only son. God pierced his only son. So that what? The healing of the world can take place. So that what? The salvation of his kingdom can begin. So that what? You can come into the home, into the home of your father. If he was to do that, to go as far as that, to achieve this, do you think that your crushing, your piercing, your punishment, your wounding would not lead to greater healing? Do you think that God would just take you there to make your life miserable? No, church. You look to the cross and you realize that if I'm going through a trial, it is to take me deeper. He is wounding me so that he can heal me. He is piercing me so that he can save me. He is crushing me so that he can free me. Amen? Let's pray.